Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to use various planning and instructional strategies to support your neurodiverse students. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Drew Thompson of Organized Minds. After episode 61 with Agent Michael Weingarth, where we discussed how to define neurodiversity, the workings of the brain as it learns, and the systematic issues that create a flawed educational infrastructure for neurodiverse learners, I knew I wanted to dig deeper into this subject. Therefore, I took this opportunity to reach out to a friend from university, Drew Thompson. Drew has always been someone I enjoyed talking to, and in fact, you can follow a link in the show notes to see a photo of our younger selves. And he was one of the few people I knew at the time who spoke openly about how his brain tended to work differently than mine. Fast forward 15 years, and I was beyond thrilled to find out that he had founded Organized Minds, a tutoring company that empowers individuals that experience ADHD, struggle with executive functioning, or identify as gifted and learning disabled. As he says on his website, he understands his students because he's one of them. He's just bigger. Fortunately, Drew was willing to continue our conversations about his own neurodiversity and to provide some guidance so that all teachers are able to better serve their diverse learners. Before we begin the interview, I'm excited to announce that I now have a Lesson Impossible blog at lessonimpossible.com blog. In it, I'm sharing modern language and ELL teaching strategies and resources such as idiom activities or prompts for using quick writes in your classroom. All of the examples are in English or French, but most are easily adaptable into any language that you are teaching. And some of the activities are great for ELA or social studies classes as well. There's a link in the show notes and in honor of Drew sharing his insights and resources with us on the podcast. This week's blog post is about all the ways teachers can differentiate their lessons to reach every learner, and each one of these strategies takes five minutes or less to implement. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with special agent Drew Thompson. All right, Drew, thank you so much for being my guest today on Lesson Impossible. I'm really excited to talk to you. To start, can you tell us who you are and what your role in education is? Yeah, sure. Thanks. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's, it's, it's an honor to be here. So I am a neurodiverse person myself. I have some kind of a learning disability and uh, some kind of executive dysfunction. Maybe I have dyslexia and ADHD. It depends how you define that. Um, and so my experience in school was hard. Despite having a bunch of strengths, uh, the weaknesses that I had were really accentuated in school because school requires you to have excellent executive function and reading and writing skills. If you can't sit still in a chair and write things down, things don't go super well at school, no matter how much you have to say. So I spent a lot of time in school frustrated that I was like, I'm a passionate learner. I love learning things, and yet I don't do well in school, even when I work really hard, and I get a whole bunch of remediation. Why is that? So I spent a lot of time in school introspecting about how to do it better. 
and what people in my community, why we have this experience. And it had a not great impact on my mental health. And so I wanted to do something about that, that I didn't think that passionate, hardworking learners should be persecuted, which is what it feels like, really, because uh, it's not my fault to have the brain that I have. And so I founded and am the director of a company called Organized Minds, and uh, we're dedicated to providing executive skills support, which are the just very briefly those brain functions that allow you to do things, be organized, execute. And the aim is to make it a better experience for people who are motivated learners. Why I reached out to you was because I think a lot of teachers are very frustrated with the amount of resources that they have when it comes to dealing with diverse learners. We're constantly told that we need to adapt and modify, but no one's ever really telling us what that looks like. And in terms of like my professional training, when I did my uh, bachelor's of education, I had one class called Exceptionalities, and it was like an hour on autism, an hour on fetal alcohol syndrome. And then it was like, good luck. Hope you don't run into kids that need any special help. Right, right. And, you know, what I've learned through experience and, and through talking with other, other people is that like every kid is different and needs special help. And there's a spectrum of neurodiversity. So that's a really long way of me saying, help me help others. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're talking about like when you do get advice, it's lots of, okay, but how do I generalize that? That's so specific. How do I bring it to either other neurodiverse kinds of people or at least just to other people with that particular kind of brain? Uh, and then how do I identify those kind of people if they're not, you know, if they're you know, not identified easily for that. I also find that a lot of the resources are, well, you need to learn more uh, about brain science or about the condition or whatever, but there's so many different kinds of these edge case conditions that that doesn't seem like really realistic. And then even more so, even if you do learn about the condition, you still have to figure out, well, how do I translate that into something that I do? Is that, is that speaking to your experience? Yeah. And I'm, you know, I've already, my shoulders are going up and more towards my ears. Cause I'm like, these are exactly the thoughts that keep me up at night. Okay. So I have, I have some thoughts and answers about that, but, um, before I jump into some like, you know, practical, what am I going to do on Monday kind of concerns? I, I want to give a lot of empathy to teachers because I really don't think it is on you. If like what you just des described, like you could get entire degrees in autism and fetal alcohol syndrome and still feel like there was way more to learn in order to come up with like lots of practical strategies. So please be gentle with yourself because, and I'm, this isn't a like, let's burn the system down conversation necessarily, although we could go there. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, between class size and class composition, not enough support, lack of mentorship, um, lack of resources, and just, yeah, such brief training, it's, it's, it's really not on you. So I, it sucks because a lot of passionate teachers really get, you know, they have relationships with these students. That they want to see things improve. And they're like, I need the tools. I don't have the tools. So that's the first, that's the first piece there. It's a weakness of the system. It's not a weakness of individual teachers. Please be gentle with yourself. It's hard for everyone, right? The question of like, okay, so how to know what to do with a student, right? Well, one thing you can uh, think about doing is if you can guide a student to understand more about how what their strengths and weaknesses profile is, that's amazing. 
So in answering your question, I'm going to start really general and, and then get specific and we can, we can get, you know, dive in as deep as, as, as you like. Um, so if you ask open exploratory questions about what works for you and doesn't, if you provide lessons in different modalities, I know it's a common thing to say, oh, you should teach all modalities, make sure there's visuals, make sure we're talking to them, they're doing something, they're saying something, interacting with it. That's all great. For sure, do that. But like, try and experiment. Give something that's really visually dominant. Give something that's really lexically dominant. Give something that's really auditory and, 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 and isolate them and then get them to reflect and then help them figure out. If they leave the class not knowing anything about the subject, but they know more about what their strengths and weaknesses profile is, that's going to benefit everybody, no matter what you do, right? So that's the first thing. I, I think you can do that in any subject, whether you're teaching math or social studies or whatever. It's just like, keep asking them what works for you. And it can be as simple as what modality, but it could also be like, time of day? What about your food consumption? Because um, if you're doing something your brain doesn't like to do, um, then you're going to be more resource intensive. You're going to like all of the things that are going to make everyone not as good a learner are going to be more pronounced for that thing. So from a personal example, because I have dyslexia or something like that and ADHD, when I go to read, everything becomes so interesting. Look at that Kleenex. It's so soft and fun. <laughs> If I'm doing a preferred activity, do I care about Kleenex? I'm not like, oh, the Kleenex is – no, I don't care about that, right? But it's more difficult because it's, it's multiplied by that. And if I'm tired, then forget about it. Advocacy starts with knowing your strengths and weaknesses. If, it, if, if you come to a teacher and you're like – as a student and you're like, this isn't working for me, solve it. That's really hard for a teacher to do. So I say this all the time to our students. It's like, but if you can say to a teacher, this is hard for me, this isn't, and what the accommodation that I would love to have because it helps me in these ways is this, most teachers are like, oh my gosh, yes, I would love to do that for you. So that's a very long-winded way of saying helping people understand the conditions by which they can be successful seems like something every teacher can do. Yeah, I already, my mind is just like, oh, even myself, I need to do an introspection like, is after lunch better for me before lunch? And I think, too, for teachers, it's a great way to model learning aside your students being like, I'm trying to figure this out for me. I'm also trying to figure out what makes me a better teacher. Am I a better teacher when I have this circumstance, an afternoon class, a morning class? That's great. I love that. And what I love about what you said there, too, is you're you're talking about your own introspection. Because I don't, I don't – do you know anyone who's like, well, this is the best way that I learn it every time and I can nail it every time? I don't know that person. Like it's a journey, right? I feel like we're constantly adding things and it changes depending on like what's going on in our personal lives or the decades of our lives or whatever. So sharing your own journey of that I think is amazing. I, I worked with this teacher one time who was an English teacher and was teaching this class of really dedicated teachers uh, – uh, students and – he was like, well, I was like, how do you write? Because they were struggling getting going on this creative writing assignment. And he was like, well, I had this weird process where I like I go for a walk and I kind of have this weird way of doing it, but it doesn't work for anybody else. I'm like, talk about that. Share that experience. Not because you're like, everybody go for a walk and do my weird way of doing it, but you share the journey that you took to come to your own personal conclusions, right? So in this, in this case, I'm arguing for teachers being a facilitator and an example of how to learn more about yourself as a learner rather than someone who's dictatorial being like, you need to use a graphic organizer, it works for everybody. Because guess what? Graphic organizers don't work for a lot of people. What are your thoughts about like frames? Like you talk about graphic organizers and how they're not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so like one of the adaptations that I helped develop with, an, with the resource teacher for one of my students was like a, a paragraph frame where it would be like, 
I am going to demonstrate. And then there's like the three lines for their different parts of their thesis, because the whole thing is like, well, if I'm looking at content, then it's unfair for me to expect the student to be able to communicate it in this paragraph. I'm just going to look at content. They're just going to fill in the content part and I'm going to write around it. But then part of me felt like this is really restrictive. Like this is literally taking all of the creativity out of what communication through writing is like, and and that's where I struggled. Like ultimately I do think it was the best for the student that we did that. But at the same time, like are those graphic organizers and those frames just like basically saying to kids, you literally cannot go and color outside of these lines because we only think that these lines are good enough for you. Yes, exactly. Um, so two things. We'll see if I can keep it to two. Um, <laughs> I love that. This is a, a philosophy I talk about all the time. The principle of separating content and how it's presented. If we think the content is really challenging or new or challenging for this person or whatever, then reduce the expectations and how the knowledge is presented uh, or let them have more uh, say over that. Like maybe it's not a test, maybe it's a play or a poem or they're acting it out, or maybe it's a conversation. Lots of students just need to have a conversation about it. Clarify for yourself as a teacher. Are you trying to understand what they know or are you trying to test them on that specific modality? Like they're test taking. That's a skill for school. Writing, like that's a very, if it's English class, you got to test them on their writing, but like maybe not give them a really difficult poem and ask them to write a complicated essay about it. Unless it's like last English 12, this is the like ultimate, this is where we all got to, you know, all the work came to or whatever like that. So separate those out because I can tell you as someone who had chicken scratch handwriting because my you know, visual motor integrations in single digit percentiles. And there's nothing that can be done about that. And be, and my spelling is in single digit percentiles. And my grammar was terrible for decades. Um, every assignment was bad. Every assignment was a C or a B. And it didn't matter how hard I worked, how many times I had someone edit it, unless, because I, or I can have someone edit it to the point where it's like effectively not mine. Um, I was always going to do bad. So you never think that you have anything to contribute, even though I had content that I thought was worthy of at least feedback and merit, you know, but if all you're talking about is how, you know, my grammar is poor, then that's detrimental. That's not, that's not, that's not teaching little Drew any good lessons. And there's anyone who has written output problems is going through that experience in school. Cause there's not a lot of empathy for that. So that's, that's very specific. That's a one kind of narrow niche of, of neurodiversity, but yeah, I love the separation of, of, um, content and how it's presented. I think that's great. Regarding graphic organizers, bleh, I hate them. I think in too many like lateral ways. I think the idea that a paragraph, that an essay needs to have like three paragraphs, is just like what some topics have only two parts and they're really big or five. Like I don't, I think that's just, uh, it's, it's, it's limiting that where people with, um, ADHD especially struggle is they want to be thinking about the connections between things. And when you give someone a graphic organizer, it shows how things are separated into categories. And if your brain doesn't naturally form things in categories, which I think everyone with executive dysfunction would have that um, in some shape, way, or form, then they can't put their ideas inside this tiny box. Um, the trouble is that if you give them and say, well, okay, let's just get you to do uh, a mind map. Go mind map that. The mind map will just like become chaotic, right? So then the conversation needs to be about how do you avoid scope creep? Oh, can you define that for me? Yeah, sure. It's that the like the creeping nature of scope. So it's all it's all in the term. That like <laughs> as you go, you add more and more. 
right? So think about making a story with like a really creative, probably hyperactive little kid. And then they're like, I had this really crazy idea. The elephant went into a rocket ship. And then you're like, what happens then? And then a blue whale became a banana. And you're like, that is, those are fun ideas, but they're not, I don't see how they're related. And the story is a series of, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and it grows. And you're like, you, you're, you're writing the broad brush stork the broad brush stroke contours of a trilogy you're not writing a short story <laughs> because we like to think in george lucas type scales and that's cool but not when you're in grade four and you need to learn to write sentences so again is the goal for them to write a creative assignment where they get to explore and feel like oh my gosh i just love these i'm so excited about these ideas and i'm engaged in it great maybe the writing does not have to all be there. But if you're like, this kid needs to learn how to do this particular thing in writing, then we may, you know, we can separate those things out um, like that. So the conversation needs to be about how to organize your ideas. And it probably needs to be done with someone else. I mean, obviously, I feel that way because this is what my company does. And this is what we do. We get creative people to talk to us. And then we're like, okay, let's draw some conceptual boundaries around that and make some categories um, to find those. Uh, but it's, it's like, think of it as a reverse graphic organizer. The graphic organizer is, here's your structure, fit your content into your structure. The reverse is, come up with your content, put the structure on top of the content. It's more time-consuming, probably, but more satisfying and more, um, it makes more sense to our brains. So as you were talking, I, I had this idea of an activity that I could do with my students, and I'd love your, your feedback on it. Ooh, please. Yay maybe like get my kids to identify, am I, am I the kind of person that likes putting the boundaries or am I the kind of person that likes exploding them? Pair, pair them up. And it's like, if you're person A and you love exploding them, you need to encourage person B to think bigger. And they're going to, but person B is going to encourage you to put boundaries on it and together you're going to create something. Would that be like a, a way to help kids both figure out what they can and can't do, but also like, cause both things I think are good to practice, like expanding your lines, but also learning how to put your own lines on things. Yeah. I love that. Um, you're talking about like, as opposed to having, this is exactly what the structure needs to have. You're talking about like transition points. That's like, you need to get the story from you know, it, it needs to get from A to B and in between those, you get to fill with cool things, but they're, and then, you know, and then you define what that is and you have to have them find what that is, you know, and then you can guide them to that and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then that, those are the kind of linchpin moments you might like, um, uh, story grammar marker for that. They, they talk, they talk about this, that there's this like story of a triangle. There's a kickoff, something that initiates an inciting event as we know what in Freytag's pyramid or whatever. And then basically that impacts someone and that someone uh, has a feeling about that and then they do something about that that then connects to another inciting incident and then then the cycle goes as opposed to having this like freight tags pyramid up and down anyways it's it's a framework that might help with that i find that there's loosely speaking different kinds of people who are either the kind of person who wants to think inductively or deductively right you're either like the more i learn about this the more the the more information like the more confidence i have the more time and time the more time and effort i put into it the more i learn in a linear fashion think of like a graph and it's like a, a 45 degree curve right it's just more time more effort more learning but there are other people who are kind of like more holistic more induct more inductive where you need a lot of data points for the conclusion to be there right so this is this is kind of like me where i'm like i put lots of time and effort into it and then i learn nothing until one point click all of a sudden it makes sense 
and I call that the 90 degree learning curve where there's nothing, 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 boom, it goes all of a sudden up and you go, oh my God, that's so great. So if you're that kind of person, you need to, you need to have things, information presented to you in a different kind of way. It takes a lot of patience when you're at like the point right before that aha moment can be really, really frustrating. Um, so I did this thing in a classroom one time where we, we, we taught that sort of idea and, you know, sort of in this way you're, you're talking about where you're like, you know, the people who like the graphic orders and people who, who want the facilitation got them to define themselves like that. Basically people who make outlines and people who didn't make outlines is what we really ascertained. And then we got the people who love to make outlines to write something and they weren't allowed to use outlines. And the people who all, who never used outlines had to use an outline and they had to pair up. So the like picture, the like, I've never gotten to be in my entire life and everything is just so kind of student with the most bouncing off the walls kid who's just like, I just make it up as I go. And they taught each other each other's method and everyone was uncomfortable. They were like, no, the, I've never gotten to be and this isn't right. Huck, I don't know where these things are going. And then the student who was bouncing off the walls was like, what do you mean I have to go one and then two? I want to go one and banana flamingo. <laughs> um, but then there was this nice pure learning experience. Um, because both have something to learn from each other. We talk a lot in teaching about strength-based teaching, which is to really focus on a student's strengths and hold that up. But then the conversations I often hear in the staff room are not, wow, Billy's a really strong speaker. It's why can't Billy solve that goddamn math problem? Yes. How is teachers can we get to that strength-based place without just being lectured why it's important? Yeah. Again, my first answer is going to be empathy to teachers because the system doesn't set you up for success about that. Because, um, you know, if you have a student who's a 99 percenter and they get an A, there is no A plus, 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 plus. And for a net, if you have, you know, if you score really, really high, if your, if your brain loves to do that thing, then no one, and that's a problem actually. Because really gifted students never study. They think studying is for dumb people. And then they get to university and they get crushed. And they're like, but studying means I'm dumb. And we work with those students all the time because they're really bright but don't have the organizational skills. So, but that's not that's not seen as a problem, right? It's only a problem. The squeaky wheel gets the oil or whatever. So it's only a problem if they're if they're not doing great. So again, I think if you can remove yourself from the objective of everyone needs to do really well. And everyone needs to get from one place to another. So we're talking about trajectories, where they are and are they in a better place and how steep is that slope of a trajectory? And also, is it really matter if Billy can't solve that math problem? Like, I wonder what the conversation would look like if it's like, man, Billy really can't solve that math problem, but I really admire how he did it, I how he's trying to do it. He's tried three times in three really different ways and has moved on from another tutor and, you know, admiring the work ethic, which is, you know, a classic, you know, Carol Dweck, growth mindset stuff type stuff. Um, but, you know, as, as te teachers, you're so often requested and required to get students to know a certain amount of information. And I, I would challenge that. Is that the best pedagogy? Because I don't know, when was the last time you had a factor or a trinomial? It's been a while probably, but in 10th grade, that was really important for a test. And unless you're using a trebuchet, you don't need to know how to do that. <laughs> How dare you make assumptions about my personal life and use of trebuchets? <laughs> I mean, I would say that the answer is that they need to be like school should be less focused on content. It should be more focused on process. And the more that you can, as an individual teacher, focus on process, I think the better that that's going to have, that they're going to have on that. So I, so I have two answers. One is talk a lot about the process rather than the product. 
right? And so when you're asked when you're asked for um, uh, at the very the very beginning, I said I would start general and get more specific. Here's one of my sort of specific like strategies that I think that really can be employed is like chunk your assignments so much, um, give process based instructions, give timelines, give inter- intermediate deadlines, um, and. And, and, and we, we believe this so much, we made materials for this and put it on Teachers Pay Teachers, and put it up for a dollar, um, that it's like, before you do an assignment, it's a checklist of all the implicit things that we could think of, at least for the neurodiversity challenges that we're aware of, um, that aren't going in there. Because if you're neurotypical or it's just going to your strengths, you're not going to be aware of the things you're expecting people to be able to do your students to be able to do, because for you, it's like breathing. You're not thinking about it. Right. But for some people, it's really challenging. So maybe there's a lot of social interpretation in your instructions. If you're on the autism spectrum, that's going to be really hard. Actually, can you stop there and define like, what is a social interpretation? Right. Yeah. So that's like being able to read facial expressions, being able to understand inferences and, you know, even idioms, you know, non-compositional idioms where you're like, it's, you know, I'm looking over my shoulder my whole life. It's like, well, you're spending your whole life with your neck turned. Like um, what we would call like concrete thinking, um, you know, it's often called that, but I think it's a bit pejorative and unfortunate because it's the way that many people's brains, you know, interpret things. There's so much of communication that is nonverbal and through tone of voice and through gesture and through inference. So the classic example for, for, for me is uh, because it really happened to me um, when the teacher is like, watch this video about dinosaurs. I loved dinosaurs very much. And then they were like, no, tell us everything you learned about dinosaurs. And so I wrote nothing because my answer was literally nothing. I learned nothing about dinosaurs because everything in that video I already knew. In fact, there were things in it that were demonstrably wrong. And so I talked about that. And so I failed the reading comprehension test because I wrote about how the things that I was like, oh, I'll impress them with all the things I know about dinosaurs. Totally missing the point. This is a reading comprehension assignment, right? The teacher's not literally asking, tell me what you learned about dinosaurs from this video that you didn't already know. The teacher's saying, were you paying attention? Can you understand? And that process of intuiting of what am I really wanting to know and saying that in a way that's like super explicit for everyone it's really challenging. And I think that should be made into a process that's part of teaching school so that everyone can understand what the teacher's asking. You give the teacher what they want, you're going to do well. doesn't matter how bright you are. If you don't give the teacher what they want, you're not going to do well. And that's a big challenge for people with um, social thinking challenges. Aw, poor young dinosaur-loving Drew. <laughs> <laughs> well, they gave me the same test the next time, and so I was like, I get it this time. It's the same test. So I just you know, told them the things I read or watched or whatever it was. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of content specific challenges that in the end I would question how much they matter. And it's it, for me, school is about, this is just my opinion. Other people may disagree. I'm happy to hear other people's opinions, but a lot of what school should be is that the things we need to do to learn the content, that's the real important thing. The content itself, most people forget perspectives and understanding generally of where the way the world works. Of course, there's lots of really important skills, but um, I guess the long winded answer to your question would be like, how much does the content matter and how much does the journey matter? And can we reward the journey? What does rewarding the journey look like? I suppose a big challenge is how do you identify the journey when all you see is them there, right? Like this happens, this happened to me a lot as a child and happens to a lot of the students at organized minds that, they actually work really hard, but it doesn't appear that that's the case because their output is so low. 
um, either because organizational struggles or because of written output or whatever like that in it, what can appear like laziness can actually be a lot of work. I guess you can separate technical feedback from uh, process feedback. So technical feedback was like, so the, the, the psychological feedback or, or, or whatever, like process feedback might be like, well, you never made an outline and it really showed because your work was all over the place. And this time you did it. Amazing. A plus for, for, for process because that's a huge improvement or whatever like that. However, your sentence structure is still garbage. So I'm still going to give you that feedback, but then maybe those are separated so that um, – because some people are going to have be more technically capable than others and not have those conflated, right? Like let's maybe not get hung up on how well you did on that test because that's probably not going to matter when you're 40 years old. But your sense of self, which will be implicit in your in your in yourself, your self-identity is forming right now. Uh, in high school, um, in ways that are difficult to change later. So maybe invite that. I don't know. I wish I had a better answer for you because again, my, I think the real solutions are systemic that then you need to be told exactly what the strengths and weaknesses of that person is. And then you need to be given the resources to deal with that. And then you need to be the administrator of that rather than someone who has to generate it independently without the support. And the fact that patterns aren't identified between grades and then passed on in some meaningful way that then tools are continuously built upon, uh, if you have a, a, a strategy that works for a student in third grade, it's, it's not necessarily the case that it's going to be passed on to the next year or the years after that. Uh, it's, you know, dependent on the family or the individual student to remember what works for them. And, and that seems problematic. It's so interesting to me how the divide between elementary school and high school, because so many elementary schools are getting rid of their desks. They have the wiggle chairs and then, so you're, uh, like in my teaching situation, it was K to seventh grade and then eighth to 12th. And it's like, you're 12, you get this wiggle chair and you're great at showing your thinking. Next year, sorry, you're too old for that. But we think of like wiggle chairs as something for little kids, but that that's totally something that's going to carry through someone's life, that they need that. Yeah. That's right. That like the simple things like we had talked about at the beginning, like, you know, when you're tired or hungry or whatever, like it's, it's nothing like we're not even have to get into a conversation about medication. It's just like, if, if you're tired, if you haven't slept well, if you haven't eaten, if you've been working for too long, then um, it's going to be really hard to concentrate and get things done. So wiggle chairs are really fantastic tools and they also need to, you need to train to, you know, uh, to kids how to use them, not because they don't know how to wiggle, but because it's like, well, when do you need a break? Do you need a break right now? And obviously it's hard when, when kids are like, yeah, I need a break because I don't want to do the work. But gen- genuinely speaking, like if I'm doing something that my brain doesn't like to do, if I'm reading, my attention span is short. And it doesn't matter how much work I put into that. Like, I, there's a, just a narrow amount of minutes I can do that for. But if I get up and leave my house and literally walk around the block or even walk down the block, like I'm talking like two minutes and move my body and see something different, I come back and it's like my, my focus has been refreshed. And I, I wonder what it would have been like as a learner if I was given movement breaks all the time. If the teacher demanded that I go get a drink of water, whether I need water or not, although I probably did, um, just to go walk down the hall and back, like every 20 minutes on a timer, like I think that would have made a huge, just that would have made a huge difference. Um, so yeah, again, asking students when they need a break or if they need a snack, or especially <laughs> I had this professor in university who was quite a goofball, who uh, was an econ teacher, maybe you had him. Um, that whenever he taught something that was difficult, he would do something ridiculous. 
Um, and it would often be like, I'm putting on this like cheesy techno music and get us all to stand up class of 300 and like touch our toes and do this like simple calisthenics. And we were all kind of looking at each other like, this guy's a weirdo. And then we'd sit down because he would do it right before really, he's like, this is a tough concept. Everyone struggles with this. Now get up. And then we'd have a one minute, two minute dance party. And I was like, wow, I feel like I have a little bit more jump in my step right now. You know, this is a three hour class. Like, and then I was like, why is this only happening in this class? Like, I get that it's like socially awkward, but like, oh my God, it helped with my learning so much. I love that. And it also like breaks that, like, cause usually when a teacher says, this is a really difficult concept, my inner voice is like, oh no, right? Like, we're like adding that, like, okay, but we're going to like compensate for a little bit of fun. I, I just love that idea of, of taking the, that pressure off, even in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, it cuts the kind of emotional momentum of whatever's come before, because you've done like, especially if you make it into something silly, like it was intentionally a cheesy, bad song so that everyone was rolling their eyes at it. Right. And he would kind of change that up a little bit um, so that it was a little bit more inviting. And I think having a snack, everybody get a snack, something with like, you know, like, especially if you are an ADHD person, you know, the, the blood is, the, the brain is such a huge consumer of blood glucose that if that's even a little bit low, like your focus just starts to wane. And as opposed to thinking, wow, I'm running out of fuel and that's, and my brain's having trouble focusing. And so I'm checking out. We just think, I guess I'm dumb and I can't do this. When really you probably just needed a wiggle and a snack. Aww. (laughs) Right? Maybe that should be the episode, a wiggle and a snack. That's the title. (laughs) (laughs) Or like a fidget or something, you know, especially if they're listening and, you know, um, you know, those kind of things right there. So you talked about the resources uh, that you made leading up to this podcast, which is so exciting. I'm like beyond excited for this. Yeah. So we, we created some, uh, on, uh, you can just search on Teachers Pay Teachers Organized Minds. The first thing that pops up, um, some writing prompts, because a lot of writing prompts don't factor in the open or close and endedness of them. Some like classic kind of thing in September for, st- for, for teachers to give students is tell me what you did over the summer. And for some people, that's great. Like, oh my gosh, we did so much. I have so many things to tell you. And some students with who struggle with task initiation or who need like, well, what do you mean? Do. Because, you know, do can mean literally any verb, right? Um, that's like syntactic test for whether it's a verb phrase is do. Um, so they need more, need to be broken down. So we made something about that where it's like, here's an example of a write, here's 10 examples of writing prompts or something like that. And then here's a version that's specific or more specific. And you can give both because some students will be like, oh my gosh, specific i have to answer all those parts that's really hard and some students would be like what does do mean it can mean anything and then it's too much right so you give both and then it simplifies it and then the other one we have about is about checklists about assumptions um like we said before what are the things that are implicit that you're probably not thinking that because your brain does it correctly like if i was making things as a neurodiverse person i because i don't struggle with social interpretation because i'm not on the autism spectrum i would probably have social interpretation implicit stuff in there that would be difficult for people who struggle with social thinking so you want to be you know considering those things as well um and then another piece there to guide people guide teachers to separate content from writing what are your what are your it's, it's okay to have both but let's let's scale our priorities mark them in exactly the same way but scale them differently so that people aren't penalized every assignment of their lives for having written output challenges. So this seems like a great place to end. And I want to thank you again for lending your expertise and perspective, especially as someone who struggled in school themselves and are actively trying to make the system better. 
thank you so much for that. How can people find out more about you and what you do and your organization? Yeah, thanks. So we're organizedminds.org and there's a lot of stuff about me and my my, my story and all that sort of stuff and, and our team and, and exactly what we do and all that sort of thing. And, and we're an online company, so you work with, with students all over the world. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. So nice being on here. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. Lesson Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts. Links to resources or people we mentioned and information in general about the podcast can be found at LessonImpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.